I had prepared uh, messages uh, to preach on this Andrew's Army theme that I've been advertising, and we got a display out here on the end of the foyer. Then the the hurricane started coming, and I thought, you know, I don't know what will happen on Sunday. I don't know how many people will even be able to get here, and I don't know what the weather will be like, and if they do come, they'll probably be glazed over from uh, listening to all this bad news about the hurricane, so I don't want to kick off something that I think is going to be so important. So I changed the message. And, um, you know, women can change their mind. They say, well, so can preachers. And I felt like the Lord was leading me to speak to you from this wonderful psalm. Uh, seriously, when people are, when, when a lot of events overwhelm people, uh, they just uh, kind of phase out. It's very easy to do, space out. And I know that we're all very concerned about the people in Florida. We have people here that have property down there we, and that are here today. We have people here that uh, have relatives and friends. I talked to a lady yesterday. She has a sister living in Tampa in the area where the surge is due to come. So and we're all affected by that. We're affected because we're Christians. We have compassion. And um, I've been watching that news. I can't get it off of my mind when I'm not watching it. It's, it's horrible. It may be the worst catastrophe the nation has ever experienced in terms of a natural disaster. You can't imagine 26 million people being displaced. And I'll tell you what, this is a political statement. I'm going to vote for Rick Scott to be the next president of the United States. I like that guy. I like somebody who can step up there and give clear directions and give leadership and have a wonderful spirit in the middle of that. So I'm for him. I don't know anything else about him, but he's already got my vote. I don't even know if he'll run, but I'm going to vote for him anyhow, you know. <clears throat> so uh, Psalm number 46. Stand with me, please, if, if you will, and let's read it together. Psalm number 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Read the rest of it aloud with me, if you will, please. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Selah. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. 
I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. You may be seated. The dreaded Assyrian army, known for their cruelty and their power and their might, had come marching out of the north from the city of Nineveh, their their, uh, capital, you see on the map there. They came down across the country of, of Syria, and then they came into the northern kingdom of Israel. They completely crossed it and went down to the border of what we now call Judah. The king of Judah was Hezekiah, one of the very few godly kings at that point in time. And when they got there, they were known for their cruelty to the point that the inhabitants were literally trembling. The Assyrians were famous for catching their captives when they invaded and skinning people alive. This was uh, the reputation that they all carried. And they foraged as they came. They lived, the soldiers were given no rations. They lived off the land. So it was like a plague had come across the land. They killed everything in their path. They stole all the food, raped all the women, killed the animals to eat them. They were animalistic in their mindset. When they got to Jerusalem, though, they encountered a great walled city, a fortress that had been built by David in years gone by. And they surrounded the city. They began to build mounds to siege the city and to cut off all the supplies. No one could come in. No one could go out. And there they encamped, and they encamped for months. The king of Assyria at that time was one named Sennacherib, Sennacherib. And he demanded over and over that Hezekiah surrender the city to him and to his troops. But uh, Hezekiah wouldn't do it. Hezekiah's chief counselor was a prophet. His name was Isaiah, who wrote the prophecy of Isaiah. And Isaiah told him, don't ever surrender the city God is going to help us. He will be with us. Sennacherib ended up writing a long letter. You will find the contents of that letter in 1 Kings chapter 18 and chapter 19. We won't read it now, but you can read it for yourself, in which he demanded the surrender of the city, and they opened the gates, and that they capitulate to him. Hezekiah took that letter, and no doubt it sent tremors of fear up his spine. But Sennacherib took that letter, and the Bible says he went to the temple, and he spread the letter open before the Lord. And he got down on his knees, and he began to pray. And he cried out to God to help them. And Isaiah told him, the Lord has heard your prayer. And one of the strangest things in all of history, as well as in the Scripture, occurred. That very night, God sent one angel, just one. He didn't need an army of them. One angel came, and he smote the Assyrian army. And the next morning, when the people of Jerusalem 
got up and looked out across the plain there, every single one of those Assyrian soldiers was dead. 185,000 corpses lay out across the plains of Jerusalem. God had heard. God had responded. And what did King Hezekiah do? He wrote Psalm number 46. Now, most of our Psalms, as you know, were written by King David himself. But this one doesn't say. It says a song upon Alamoth, which means for high-pitched instruments or voices, And it was given to the chief musician, and the sons of Korah were the temple musicians. They were the official choir and orchestra members at the temple in Jerusalem at that time. And the writer, we believe, all the scholars point to, and there's evidence internally in it, that it was written by King Hezekiah. Notice what he says, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Analyze that with me for a moment. The word God there, it's such an interesting thing, and I don't have time to explain all these, but do you see the spelling of the word God? That King James translators did something very, very special. There are about five or six words in the Hebrew for God, and each of them is spelled a little differently in in, in our King James Bible. So sometimes it's a capital followed by small letters, and sometimes it's a capital followed by all caps, and uh, different variations of the way that the word is spelled. This word is God. It's Elohim. It's the same word that the Bible opens with. In the beginning, God created. And who is Elohim? It comes from Hebrew term, which means a strong one, a mighty one. Elohim emphasizes his strength, his power, his overwhelming power. And that is who Hezekiah says is our refuge. Uh, Sometimes it's translated the faithful one. God, the strong one. God, the faithful one. Over 2,500 times in the Old Testament, it He uses that spelling. Elohim, the God that created the heaven and the earth, is the one, he says, that will be our refuge here. Look at the word refuge in your Bible. It's a shelter. But notice it's not a gymnasium or a community building for a shelter like the people now in Florida are having to use. God is the refuge. Our refuge is not a place or a building. Our refuge is is God himself. Isn't that great? What a great promise of the Word of God. And it goes further, and it says that he is a very present help. He's ever-present. There will not be a time that he will not be available to you and me. Now, it may not seem like that. You may not feel him with your senses, but I can tell you he is right here. He is with you right now. There will never be a time when you will not be in the presence of Almighty God. And then, a very present help in trouble. And the word trouble there is literally a tight place. We sometimes say, I'm in a tight. Well, they use that terminology here. God, Elohim, the strong, faithful one of Israel, is our shelter, our refuge, and our strength. He is with me right now, and he is my help in this stressful, 
tight situation that I'm going through. Now, I think that's pretty good news, folks. I think that was worth coming to church for this morning, just to go back and reflect on what the Scripture says about Almighty God here and His promises to us. And then notice what he says in verse 2. Therefore, will not we fear? And then he lists all these natural disasters. We won't fear if the earth is removed. Now, that's probably an earthquake. And though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, that might be a hurricane. Sounds like it. Though the waters roar and be troubled, that's for sure a hurricane or a tsunami or something. And though the mountains shake and they swell up with lava like as in a volcano. And he describes all these, these, these various natural disasters these catastrophes that can come upon us as we live here on this planet. And he says, in all of those, therefore, we will not fear. What a verse for this time. What a verse for the people of Florida. What a verse for the people of South Carolina. What a verse for us that the thing that assuages our fear is not looking around at all the catastrophes, but it's getting our eyes upon him and having confidence and faith in the one who rules the world. Thursday, we received a note here from Tom Franklin. Tom is our missionary. He's been here a number of times. We built him a building down in uh, Haiti a few years ago. He lives on the island of Hispanola, which is half, of course, the Dominican Republic and half Haiti. And he sent this out on social media. He said he lived in this town. The town is called St. James of the 30 Nights. I never heard of it, but that's where he lives. It's only 739 feet above sea level somewhere there in Dominican Republic. He said this, Boy, what an illustration of Psalm 46, too. It is just starting to become very cloudy as Hurricane Irma moves closer and is expected to hit just 30 miles north of us late tonight. The storms that come our way and buffet our lives are inevitable. Regina and I intend, as always, not to be, listen to this, unbalanced in our consumption of media telling us of our impending doom. That's good, good advice, isn't it? We've decided we're not going to stay in front of the television and the computer and all the different reports from the media. We're not going to overly consume media telling us of our impending doom. Nor will we pace the floor in worry or anxiety because a ship that is anchored in Jesus Christ is spiritually unsinkable, Hebrews 6.19. There is no fear, as we have seen God keep His promise to always accompany us, care for us, and keep us in His will through 15 different tropical storms and hurricanes over the last 20 years of our ministry here in Latin America. So he's been through this before, and God has proven himself. Tom was in Cuba underground.
for a number of years, established a bunch of little Baptist churches across the island of Cuba. And then the authorities came and arrested him. And Tom was put into jail and interrogated every day and treated horribly for about three or four months. We prayed for his deliverance, and finally God delivered him. He knows what it is to be in a tight place. All, all those 20 years of hurricanes and tropical storms and jail in a Cuban jail. So he said, in the light of that, our family and those we love and the work here are busy preparing, and in some cases, they're having to move to higher ground. It's not wrong to prepare. But even as good judgment dictates a certain pattern, there's only so much poor communities in the developing world can do. And so today, Pastor Dial, Regina, and I will spend a lot of our time serving the church in differing ways. We're going to go to the government office and seek a permit to clear, fill, and compact Don Piedro's church property. The work here is moving forward, and tonight we will solemnly gather and humbly pray in prayer with the whole church over our specific concerns. Man, what a great letter. What a great spirit. Now, remember, the guy writing this, the hurricane's going to come within 30 miles of him that night. But he's got this calm, settled confidence and faith in God that is so missing in our world today, is it not? So that's what he's saying here in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 46 and, and, and verse 3. And then at the end of verse 3, there's that little word that you see throughout the Psalms, selah, selah. John Phillips says that word means, now think on this. Now think about this. Now think about what? That God, not a place, is our refuge that he is an ever-present help. He's never going to abandon us. He's always going to be there for us when we're in trouble and in a tight place. And therefore, we won't fear when all these natural catastrophes and things we can't control are coming round about us. Now, what do you think of that, he says? What do you think of it? What do you think of it? Now, what do you think about that? God says, I'm going to be with you in the tight places, in the stressful places, in the catastrophes of life. And he guarantees us his presence in that. Let's go on to verse 4 and talk about God's presence and God's protection in our lives. Verse 4, he begins it with, there is a river. Now, what he's referring to in that passage of Scripture is something that we know today that archaeologists have discovered over in Israel. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. Hezekiah's Tunnel. That during the reign of Hezekiah, anticipating an invasion from the Assyrian army, Hezekiah took his army and all the workers, and they built that tunnel. The picture on the left shows you it is hewn out of solid rock. It's like a granite. It's like a marble, a very, very hard top, a type of rock. And here's the information on that. I got those pictures off the internet. It's very well known. And so when Hezekiah and the 
people of, Israel, of Judah began to hear that they were going to be invaded by Assyria, then they began to make preparations. That's why I say reasonable preparations are, are, are what we ought to, uh, of course, that's prudent. That's what the Lord wants us to do. Hezekiah's tunnel is 40 meters deep beneath the city of Jerusalem. It's a tunnel that is 1,777 feet, and it runs through solid rock. It connects to a spring outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem, the Springs of Gihon, it's called. And the water flows downhill from there into what is called the Pool of Siloam for... 1,777 feet. It's a long tunnel. And they dug that. It took years to, to dig it. But once it was dug, it is so permanent, it is so strong, it is still there today. And when you go, if you go to the Holy Land, you can actually go and see that at certain times. The tunnel, or Hezekiah's tunnel. And so it provided for them a river. They went out and they hid the springs. They covered the springs. And to this day, water runs from the spring of Gihon right down through 70, 1,777 feet of, of, of granite. And it dumps into the pool of Siloam where Jesus, of course, healed the man that was lame and other events in his life. So they had a river. And old Sennacherib and his army could sit out there and threaten them all they wanted, but they had water, and they had prepared, and they knew that they could hold out for a long, long time. But he mentions the river. Now, I know there are spiritual applications to the river that I don't have time for this morning, but look at verse 7. He really is focused on God's presence. Okay, we've got the river. We've got water now, but... The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. I think that merits an underline in your Bible for you to claim for yourself one day. The Lord of hosts is with us. It seems so important to him that look in verse number 11, he says it again. He repeats it. The Lord of hosts is with us. Over and over and over through the Bible, because God wants us to not miss on this one, folks. He reminds us of his presence with us. Psalm 23 and verse number 5, and I will fear no evil when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, for thou art, what's the next word, with me. No wonder that Psalm has comforted people down through the ages like almost no other passage of Scripture. Thou art with me when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. When I'm dying, the Lord is going to be there with me. That's his promise of his presence. Matthew 28, the Lord gives the great commission. You're going to go out and take the gospel across the whole world, and you know what? You're going to have severe opposition, but when you do, remember this, lo, I am with you until the end of the age. And you can witness, and you can preach, and you can teach, and you can share the gospel of Christ. But remember this above all else, that when you're standing there sharing the gospel, he's standing right here beside you. He is with us. He is with us. And then in verse 7, not only do we have the promise of God's presence, we have his protection. 
Notice the next phrase in both verses, 7 and 11. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The God of Jacob. Jacob, a scoundrel. Jacob, a deceiver. Jacob, a man who was not a perfect man. If God only helped those who were perfect, we'd be left out, would we not? But the God who identifies himself through grace with sinners, with Christians who disappoint us, but God says, I identify myself with sinful people, imperfect people, and I will be with you and I will be your refuge. The word refuge, the first time up there in verse 1, refers to a shelter. It's a different Hebrew word here in this passage. It means a fortress. Some impregnable stronghold that nobody can get into. Walls up to heaven and thick as they can be. Some safe place beyond any human capability to get to us. God's presence, verse 7, and God's protection, verse 7, repeated in verse or in verse 11. Martin Luther is one of those people in history that I'm always fascinated by. He was a game changer. And he wrote that song we just sung called, among other things, the greatest hymn that's ever been written. Been sung by all of God's people of all denominations now for, what, about 500 and some years. Luther wrote that in 1527. Listen to what was going on in Europe when he wrote that. The plague had taken over in Europe and people were dying so fast, they would pull a cart down the street and stack the bodies on it and take them out and put them in a mass grave. People were dying everywhere. 1527. And Luther had a little infant girl who was the apple of her daddy's eye, and she got sick, and she died. So people are dying up and down the streets, and his little daughter is called away, and she dies. Some of his friends who had stood by him through those days when he had taken on the Pope and the established church of that day, they forsook him. The pressure was too great. They abandoned him. They compromised. They turned back. Burying your little daughter, people dying all around you, friends forsaking you. Boy, he realized there was nothing he could do. Nothing. All he could do was take his hands off and look up to the God of the Bible. And he wrote. He loved to write hymns. He's, in a, he's literally living in the basement of a castle because there's a price on his head. And he wrote, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Still our ancient foe, doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. 
Were not the right man on our side the man of God's own choosing? Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath is his name. From age to age the same, and he will win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. And one little word shall fail him. And that word above all earthly powers. No thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Listen to this. This is where we struggle. Let goods and kindred go. Hard to do, isn't it? Let our goods, our possessions, and our kindred, even our friends and family go. And this mortal life also. The body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still, and his kingdom is forever. What are, what are our resources? The spirit and the gifts are ours. Who is on our side? Lord Sabbath, Christ Jesus, it is he, the man of God's own choosing. Who will win? And this battle of the ages, this spiritual warfare that also affects nature and the material world, but primarily spiritual, who will win? He will win the battle, he said. And what is it that lasts and what is it that abides? This world is passing away, but listen to Luther. God's word abideth still. And what matters? What's important? I can't identify with the people of Florida who are standing there watching their home inundated with water and all their possessions carried away and, and all that they're going to be going through in days ahead. But if I could go down there and preach this afternoon to a crowd of Floridians... I think what I would say to them is, what matters? Let goods and kindred go. The governor said, get out, save your life. You can buy another house or you can replace property, but you cannot replace your life. I would go further than that and talk to them about their soul. Don't hang on to the things of this world so much that it endangers your soul, for heaven's sakes. Let goods and kindred go. And this mortal life also. And there's no promise of physical survival for us. That's what we want to hear. We want to hear some guarantee that everything's going to be all right. The Bible doesn't have that. I'm sorry. There's no guarantee of physical survival. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. 
and his kingdom, say it with me, is forever, forever. Don't sacrifice the permanent on the altar of the immediate. Don't give away today what you will wish you had not given away, or what you will wish you had not given away five years or ten years from now. Verse 10. And there's some godly counsel here for us. I'm always telling you in catastrophes and troubles, seek godly counsel. Okay, here's godly counsel straight from the Lord Himself. Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Be still, get quiet. Stop activity. Withdraw from life to whatever degree you can. And know that I am God. He's not talking about an atheist there. He's talking to believers that we stop. The art of meditation, of just thinking, is rapidly being vanquished in our society. Let me ask you a question. How much do you know about God? I'm not talking about coming to church and just being taught by somebody else. Another way to say it is, How much time have you ever personally invested in the pursuit of God apart from coming to church? The truth is the average professing evangelical American Christian, in my opinion, have not spent more time watching a football game than they ever have in pursuing a knowledge of God. To seriously open up a Bible, open up some books, Get some information and begin to pursue. Who is this God that we claim that we worship every week? Oh, I go to church, I hear the rev, I sing those songs, but I can't really say I know much about God. And every day they tell us that the knowledge of theology and the knowledge of God, that's what theology is, theos, God, Theology stands for knowledge, the knowledge of God, theology. Do you know when Harvard University and Yale and all those schools were found in the early days of this country, every student was required to study theology. It was viewed as being more essential than history and English. And the country knew something about God, but today, uh uh-uh, I'm sorry. Who is this God that we're depending on who is supposedly our refuge? D. James Kennedy said, every theological error begins with a wrong view of God. He said, we don't know who God is, and as a result, we don't know who we are. Oh, man, what powerful words. We don't know who God is, and therefore, we neither know who we are. This God that is our refuge is infinite, ladies and gentlemen, infinite. There are no limits to anything about him. Everything on the earth, everything about us is finite, limited. We come to the end of ourselves and of our strength, but not him. No limits. 
This God has all power. Even Jesus Christ said, all authority, all power is given unto me. Power that can speak a universe into existence. Power that can raise the dead. He not only has all power and is he infinite, but he is all-knowing. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows everything that's happening in that hurricane. He knows everything. Omniscience, we call it, big word. He knows everything. He is not only omniscient, all-knowing, he's all-loving. There's never a time that he doesn't love. There's never a time that he is not for us. He is just, and he hates injustice, and someday he will judge the universe, and he will rid this universe of all injustice. God is righteous. He's always right. He's never wrong. And above all, he's holy, holy. And today we have no concept of that word holy. I grew up thinking the word holy meant pure. It does. God is pure because he's holy. But that's really not what holy means. You know what holy means? It's a strange word. It's a Hebrew word which meant to cut in order to separate. It's like you would take a piece of meat, a, a night, best heart of a roast or something, and you would cut and you would separate it and pull it out. That's what the Hebrew word indicates, holy. You separate it. It's separated. Or another way of saying it, holy means other. And my professor taught me that in Bible college, and I thought, what a, what a concept. God is other. I thought, that makes no sense. Other? Yeah, other. That's what it means. He's not like anything else. He's not made up out of the table of elements. He's other. He's transcendent, infinite. You say, I can't get my mind around it. You're exactly right. Neither can I. You see, I'm finite, and my brain is this big, And here's God. But if I stop and think about that, be still and know, wow, that changes everything. He rules over nature. He knows there's a hurricane going on, and he's involved in the hurricane. Now, I don't think that God causes hurricanes. I think that's a result of a broken world, but that's another subject. He doesn't give us any explanation for why these things happen. He doesn't have to. We're the creature. He's the creator. You know us an explanation. He rules over nations. Isaiah 40 says the nations are like a drop in a bucket to him. You think God's impressed by Kim Um or whatever his name is? You think he's got God on the defense? 
He rules over rulers. So Hezekiah went up there and spread that letter out and prayed over it. And God said, I'll take care of Sennacherib's army tonight. And he, when he goes home, I'm going to take care of him. He went home and went to worship his pagan God. And you know what happened? His two sons came to the temple and they killed him. God wiped the whole crowd out. You know, we have invented a God, ladies and gentlemen, in America, a designer God. He's not the God of the Bible that most Americans worship. He's a God that's very easy to relate to, a God we're comfortable with. You know, he's a, he's a nice, non-threatening fellow. We can enjoy him in our lazy boy with our bedroom shoes on. He's not the God of the Bible. He's never angry with sin, the American God. Oh, No. An angry God? No, no. I worship a loving God. We don't ex because of that, we made him so impotent and weak. We don't expect any miracles. We don't really even expect answers to prayer. Our God's not big enough. But if we turn to the God of the Bible, this is a time not for confusion and discouragement. It's a time for confidence. Confidence, C-O-N, con, with, Latin. Fetus, F-E-E-D, uh, whatever it is. And it means to trust in or put faith in. So confidence is to go forward with faith, to move forward with trust. The Weather Channel told me last night, Trust in the Weather Channel. They said that about 10 times. Well, when you go home, you start watching the Weather Channel, they're going to tell you to trust them. I do appreciate what they're doing. I mean, anybody standing out there in a 100-mile-an-hour wind going, blah, 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 you know, I, I, I appreciate that, and I appreciate the information they give me, but that's not what I'm trusting. God is our refuge. Athletes put their trust in their training, they tell me. That's what um, the guy from up there, Clemson, said the other day. He said, we're going to, Dabo, he said, we're going to we play some young guys and they'll put their confidence in their training. And depositors at the bank put their trust in the FDIC. And people who watch the Weather Channel trust the Weather Channel. But God is our refuge and our strength. I will not doubt, though all my ships at sea come drifting home with broken masts and sails. I shall believe the hand which never fails from seeming evil worketh good for me. And though I weep because those sails are battered, still will I cry while my best hopes lie shattered. God, I trust in thee. I will not doubt, though all my prayers return unanswered from the still white realm above, I shall believe it is an all-wise love which has refused those things for which I have yearned. And though at times I cannot keep from grieving, yet the pure ardor of my fixed believing undimmed shall burn. I will not doubt those sorrows fall like rain and troubles swarm like bees 
around a hive. I shall believe the heights for which I strive are only reached by anguish and by pain. And though I groan and tremble with my crosses, I yet shall see through my severest losses a greater gain. And I will not doubt well anchored in the faith. Like some staunch ship, my soul braves every gale. So strong its courage that it will not fail to face the mighty unknown sea of death. And oh, may I cry when my body parts with spirit. I do not doubt so listening worlds may hear it with my last breath. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you will, please.